as they say in the bayou, P-O-D-N-A, Padna. Oh, no. Hebrews 20.20, this is increment 103. And I want to begin by saying something that my dear friend and co-laborer said just before this message. Emery Persinger, you all know him. Many of you know him. He's co-laboring with me even now. He said, I can't wait until tomorrow because I get better looking every day. That, that's, a, that's a quote from Emery Persinger, our, our friend and colleague. Okay, the joy of the Lord is our strength, and so let's continue in the, the word. Ah, I, didn't, I hope I can handle this now. All right, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. It says, indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the deliberations and determinations of the heart. Just change that translation recently. Determinations of the heart. Now consider this in John chapter 12, a couple of excerpts or a few excerpts from John chapter 12, verse 45 through 50. Just a few excerpts that that came to mind as I was considering. So you see, what we're doing now is we're considering and continuing a kind of a reflection on and a meditation on the word of God, which is... Halagas tu theu. Maybe we'll even call this increment Halagas tu theu three. One, two, three. Roman numeral three. But John 12, Jesus is speaking and he said, And the one who sees me, I love that because it came to mind recently and it has to do with our theme. We see Jesus. But he says, And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. Seeing Jesus, we also see the one who sent him. We also see the Father. What's the Father like? We see Jesus, we see the Father. The one who sees me sees him who sent me. That's a remarkable thing. God is who he is in his word, as we've learned from the Targums. I, I in my word am he. And Jesus said in John 8, 28, when you have lifted me up, again, that lifted me up is a word that corresponds to the sacrifices of the Old Testament under the Levitical order. We'll see what that means. And so it has to do with Jesus being a sacrifice lifted up. When you will have lifted me up, then you will know that I am, meaning I am he. God is who he is in the word. His word is Jesus made flesh. His flesh was impaled to the cross. This is God. God is a crucified God. God is a God of love, infinite love, indescribably awesome love, indescribably universal, unrestricted love, demonstrated by that which shows his love, a crucified God, but also a risen God, a God who was buried and out of sight, a God who rose from the dead. It is now exalted in the highest of heavens, a God who is also the man, Christ Jesus. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. Skipping to 48, verse 48 of John 12, the one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has one who judges him. Now listen carefully to this. The word that I've spoken is his judge on the last day. The word is the judge. What happens in Hebrews 4.12? The word is a judge, a critical assessor of thoughts and intents of the heart. It critically assesses the heart that accepts Christ and his sayings. It critically assesses the heart that rejects him. But it does so 
in both cases as an act of mercy, as an act of grace, and as an act of love. So, again, John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has one who judges him. The word that I've spoken is his judge in the last day. Verse 49, because I haven't spoken from myself. I didn't originate this doctrine, this truth. Instead, the Father who sent me, now the one who sent him is identified clearly as the Father. Instead, the Father who sent me gave me a mandate. He sent Jesus Christ on a mission with a mandate. And what to say and what to speak. If we put it on the crudest level of human nature, we say to our son, go in that other room and tell that person this and say it just like this because it'll convey what I want to convey. So he says, I have... The father who sent me, meaning on a mission, gave me a mandate. The father who sent him on a mission gave him a mandate. And that mandate included what to say and what to speak. What sayings to say and what to speak. And then verse 50, smashing verse. I know his mandate amounts to eternal life. So... What the Father says, I say. The mandate that the Father gave to the Son is to speak in a way that conveys life. Life to all, as we're going to find out. If Jesus' words are life, and I take him at his word, and they are, my words are spirit, and they are life in John 6, 63. And Peter echoed this when Jesus said, are you going to go away too? Just like all these other people who are leaving me because my words are scandalous because they've interpreted them literally when they need to be interpreted metaphorically. Are you going to go away too? Peter said, look, you have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? He didn't maybe make a distinction between the literal and the figurative. Peter didn't. But he knew that his words gave life. That was enough. And so if Jesus' words are life, and they are, then they convey life. They communicate life. And the life that they convey is the life of the coming age. Here's a thesis. We had a thesis back in 102. Here's a thesis for 103, increment 103. To be judged by the word that Jesus is, has spoken is to receive the life that he communicates to us by his word. Let me say that again. To be judged by the word that Jesus has spoken is to receive the life that he communicates to us by that word. The one who doesn't accept him is judged by the word that Jesus has spoken and that word conveys to that one who didn't accept him life. His word, as a judging word, a word that judges or critically assesses, kritikos is the word in the Greek, kritikos, K-R-I-T-I-K-O-S, a kritikos, judge or assessor, evaluator. His word as a judging word is a rectifying word. The judgment is a setting right of the thoughts and intents of the heart, of the deliberations and determinations of the fourth level of the intentional consciousness. His word as a judging word is a justifying word. 
God who is the judge of all. This is probably one of the most important things that I've discovered in the study of Hebrews compared with the study of Romans or coming off a study of Romans. God who is the judge of all, Hebrews 12.23, is the justifier of all. So his judgment is a justifying judgment. That's why the judge of all in Hebrews 12.23 is in such close proximity with the spirits of justified people made complete. So Jesus' word is a judging word that's a rectifying word. It's a setting right of what's wrong word and a justifying word, a making right. I read someone recently that said justification isn't making right but declaring right. That's wrong. Let me justify that word and rectify that statement. Justification is a making right of someone. And so it is a making right of what is wrong, setting right. As God, his father, is the judge of all in Hebrews 12, 23. And as God's commandment is life in John 12, 50. So the son's obedience to the father's mandate resulted in justification and life to all of humanity. That's Romans 5.18, where there is a perfect balance between all in Adam condemned and all in Christ justified. And that, incidentally, that balance is found again in Romans eleven thirty to 32, and I hope to get to that right during this increment, right during this small contribution to an exegesis, a theological exegesis of Hebrews. Now, I'm going to say it again with a little bit of amplification. As God, his Father, is the judge of all, And as God the Father's commandment is life, or mandate is life, so the Son's obedience to the Father's mandate, which is life, resulted in justification and life to all of humanity, including those who did not accept his words when he was here, and those who do not accept them and him now. The reason for that is that the judgmental word will be, I said the judgmental word will be, in the last judgment, a life-giving word. Bringing to pass the word of the Apostle Paul. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. The all in Adam is the universal grouping of humanity. The all in Christ is the universal solidarity of all of humanity and all of its times in Christ, the second all-inclusive representative. The life with which all are made alive is the very life of Christ. I hope you're staying with me on this. It's important that listening and maybe reading the notes would be good. The life with which all are made alive is the very life of Christ. The life that is Christ. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. When Christ, who is our life, appears, We will appear with him. Of course we will. He's our life. Consequently, it will not do to say, quote, those who reject Jesus are made alive, of course, in order to live forever in hell. Boy, is that an insight. No. It says they will be made alive in Christ. 
I've not seen this more clearly expressed by anyone more than Thomas Talbot. His book, Inescapable Love, is one of the best treatments of the subject, but he also wrote an article entitled, A Pauline Interpretation of Divine Judgment. It's in a book called Universal Salvation, The Current Debate. And in his article, he wrote this, and I'm quoting, Nothing could be clearer than Paul's own glorious summation in Romans 11.32. For here, once again, we encounter a parallel structure where the first all, A-L-L, determines the reference of the second. Now listen carefully to this because it's foreign to most minds who lack true insights. And it's even foreign to my mind even when I consider true insights. It may even be a little bit foreign to your mind if you have true insights. He goes on to say, according to Paul, the very ones, and he emphasizes this in italic font, according to Paul, the very ones whom God shuts up to disobedience, whom he blinds or hardens or cuts off for a season, are those to whom he is merciful. His former act is but the first expression of the latter, L-A-T-T-E-R, and the latter is the goal and purpose of the former. Purpose in italics. He closes with this sentence. God hardens a heart in order to produce, in the end, a contrite spirit, blinds those who are unready for the truth in order to bring them ultimately to the truth, imprisons all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. That's one of those very few exquisite paragraphs that you find in your readings if you study like I do and enjoy it and are more excited about what you study than people get excited about a Super Bowl. Much more. I'm much more excited about this than I ever was about any of the 55 Super Bowls. And I've been around for all of them. Because I'm probably about 55. But here it is. In John 12, 45 to 50, The word of God is not the incarnate word himself, but listen carefully. It's the word that he speaks there specifically, but listen carefully. On the other hand, the word that he speaks is the word, capital W, that the Father spoke and spoke eternally. The word that the Father spoke is the eternal word. Therefore, the word of God in Hebrews 4.12 can refer both to the word that the Father spoke and that the Son spoke and also refers to the word that the Son of God is. For the Son of God, the only eternally begotten, is also the word of God eternally spoken. His name, Jesus, Yehoshua, or Yeshua, means salvation. He is the salvation spoken by God. When he was lifted up, as the sacrifices were when offered by the priests of the old order, when he was lifted up, then they would know that Jesus is he, that he is God who is who he is in his word. John eight twenty eight. That's a deliberately challenging paragraph I just said to you so that you'll think, so that you'll reflect, so that you might consider God. You might consider and I might consider with you the God who supersedes our imagination and our ability to to articulate 
into doctrinal form who he is. The action of the word of God is not finally to judge unto condemnation. I'll say that again. The ultimate action of the word of God is not finally to judge unto condemnation, but to assimilate to life. And it's also to assimilate to love. I refer back to 102, increment 102. There is that which is beyond justice. Please listen. There is that which is beyond justice. It's called love. Or the old timers called it charity. Charity didn't used to mean giving something to an organization that will give it to the needy. That's wonderful and that's an act of love. But charity had a little different meaning to the old timers from Augustine to Aquinas up through Lonergan. The justice of a law like lex talionis, you've heard of that before. Lex talionis, T-A-L-I-O-N-I-S. The law like lex, L-E-X, another word, T-A-L-I-O-N-I-S. The justice of a law like lex talionis, or what we would call the law of retaliation, found in Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25. That law has been superseded by the law of charity, which inextricably assimilated, assimilates to the, what is known as the law of the cross. I'll say that again. This is a pretty packed passage or packed teaching. The justice of a law like lex talionis of the law of retaliation Exodus 21, 23 to 25, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, etc. That law has been superseded by the law of charity, which is inextricably assimilated to the law of the cross. By that law, the law of the cross, God does away with the evils of the human race, not by the force of retaliation, but by the power of a conversion of those evils into a supreme good. Jesus himself taught and eventually exemplified and embodied in himself, especially in him crucified, the law of charity, which superseded the law of retaliation. Follow this fluency in the scripture. In Matthew 5, 38 to 39, Jesus taught, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I'm saying to you, I'm saying to you, in other words, I'm superseding that law with this. Don't retaliate against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if someone slaps you on one side of your face, turn the other side to him too. Now, as this teaching evolved, as it progressed, as he went verse by verse in our Bible, it has evolved in Matthew 5.43 to 5.45a. Jesus said this, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then you'll be assimilated to your Father in heaven. To be assimilated to your Father in heaven is you'll be like him. You'll be transformed. You'll be renewed by his love into a, an imitation of him, an imitation by a manifestation of his life. The law of love or of charity, which is also known as the royal law, because it's the law of the great king. James 2.8. The law of love or of charity, which is the royal law, supersedes the law of retaliatory justice. By the law of retaliation, the evils of society are perpetuated. By the law of charity, they are ultimately ended and terminated. Let me say that again. It's kind of a proverbial saying. By the law of retaliation, the evils of society are perpetuated. By the law of charity, they are ultimately terminated, those evils of society. By the law of love, we become assimilated to God the Father. 
And by assimilated, I mean we are assimilated to the love of God and as such imitators of God in Ephesians 5.1 and perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect in terms of love. And that perfection of love is simply the universality of its application even to enemies in Matthew 5.48. So again, assimilation to God and as such imitators of God and of his forgiving love, even as God for Christ's sake or because of Christ has forgiven us, forgive others. Ephesians 4.32 goes into 5.1. We are imitators of God in as much as we are imitators or assimilating to his forgiveness. This is what we call living theology, not just doing theology or teaching theology. We said earlier that Jesus, the word incarnate, taught from his mouth the superseding law of love, which is inextricably assimilated to the law of the cross. But we also taught and he also exemplified and embodied the law of love as he endured the cross. For during his passion, he gave both sides of his face to the Roman soldiers who slapped him on both sides of his face. So he gave his other cheek to his tormentors, to those that were beating him. He embodied that truth. He gave it. They, they didn't tear out his beard. He said, I gave my face to those who tear out the beard. In other words, to the Hebrews and the Jews who wore beards customarily, the Romans' clean-shaven face looked like people that tore their beards out of their face. And so it's the Roman soldiers beating him. It doesn't say they tore out my beard. It says, I gave my face to those who don't have beards, basically, and they beat him. That's the, the prediction of the Roman soldiers beating him in Isaiah 50 in verse 6 and all the way through 53. And so, Jesus embodied that very teaching on the cross. During his passion, he obeyed his own mandate to turn the other cheek to, his evil, to evildoers, those doing him wrong. And on the cross, more importantly, he did not pray, Father, retaliate against them but Father, forgive them. As he approached the cross, he said, don't you think I could call on my Father and he'd send 12 legions of angels and they'd wipe out this whole mess here and all of my opponents? But no, I have a mandate from my Father and it's life even for those who are my enemies and forgiveness for those who are my enemies. So he did not pray, Father, retaliate against them. Get them. Get them, Abba. No. Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is the confirmation of love. Universal forgiveness is the confirmation of unrestricted love. 2 Corinthians 2.10 says, If you forgive a brother, you're confirming your love for him. The love of God is confirmed by the forgiveness of all humankind and the mercy of God shown to all. Forgiveness is the action of the living word who himself is perfectly assimilated to the Father in heaven with whom, in fact, he is one. Jesus is one with his Father in existence and in essence, in being and in act and in name, for he has the name Yahweh as his Father does, as the Holy Spirit does. But he who is one in existence and essence with the Father is distinct as a person. For the Son is everything that the Father is, except he's not the Father. The Father is everything that the Son is, except he's not the Son. The Spirit is everything that the Father and the Son is, except the Spirit isn't the Father or the Son. That's theology. Sometimes when we cry for justice... We reveal that our hearts are not yet assimilated to love. Please let me say that again, because this is what's going to transform history in the next generations. Not my words, but this reality. 
Sometimes when we cry for justice, we reveal that our hearts are not yet assimilated to love. Cries for justice today sometimes arise from hearts not assimilated to love, sometimes even from hearts with a toxic root of bitterness. Cries for justice today sometimes arise from hearts, therefore not assimilated to love, imitative of Jesus and of the Father. And I'll say it again because it's a thesis. Social justice doesn't bring about redemptive change. Love does. We who are partakers of a heavenly calling are commanded to overcome evil, not with retaliatory justice that perpetuates the evil. You knock my eye out, I knock your eye out, your brother knocks my other eye out because I knocked your eye out. It perpetuates the evil. So we are partakers of a heavenly calling in Hebrews 3.1 and we are commanded to overcome evil not with retaliatory justice that perpetuates the evil but by the ultimate good that converts the evils of the human race into a supreme good, that being love and the law of charity, which is inextricably linked to the law of the cross. Romans 12.9, Romans 12.21, and in Galatians 5.24, those that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh along with its passion for retaliation, is one way we could say that. When it says that the word of God is a judge or a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart, it is saying that the word of God, which witnesses along with the blood and the spirit, renews the heart by assimilating the heart to, or we could say conforming the heart to, an imitation of the love of God. If we love with that fearless love, then we are as Jesus is in this world. 1 John 4, 17 to 18. The perfect love that drives out all fear is a fearless love. It's as Jesus was in this world. The one thing that characterized Jesus more than anything else was his fearless love for his Father and for all humankind, for his disciples but for all humankind too. And when we love with that fearless love, then we are as he is in this world. And as a result of that, if we have been as he is in this world, then we can have confidence in the day of assessment when everyone is evaluated for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, in 2 Corinthians 5.10. In the final judgment, we will be assimilated and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. For some people, that might be a bit painful and a bit traumatic because it's going to mean the destruction of the illusions that they stubbornly held on to all their life in this world. But for others, we're going to stand there, we will, they will stand there in confidence knowing that they have already been as he is in this world as much as one can be in this body of humiliation. And so in the day when we all stand before the tribunal of God, and I face that with a little bit of trepidation, because honestly, one can never know if they're qualified for reward. I don't think we should finally say, well, I'm going to get crowns. I'm going to get rewards. I'm going to get this. If I get any crowns, it's the ones I need on my teeth. But I don't, I share Paul's insecurity about that. I think it's a healthy insecurity that I may be disqualified after preaching to others that I may be disqualified. So I run as one who wins. I run as one who isn't certain that I'm going to cross the line and reach the mark of the prize. There's a certain kind of certainty that's not healthy. And it's a kind of a self-confidence that isn't healthy. It's okay if your confidence is self-confidence, if your self-confidence is in God's self. 
So we may have confidence in the day of assessment when everyone is evaluated for the deeds done in his or her body, whether good or bad, in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Good, agathos, being acts of love pre-moved by God and enabled by God. Bad being acts that perpetuated evil in this evil age, pre-moved or promoted by the flesh, capital F, or by sin, capital S, referring us back to Romans, or even by unclean spirits. Some actions are actually motivated or pre-moved by unclean spirits. And that's not a good thing at all. The good acts for which the saints will be commended have to do with acts or deeds of self-sacrificing love, not just with high-sounding, pretentious professions of love. These are the kind of works that the PT is talking about when he says, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. Please notice love and good works, not just good works. To love and good works. No good works without love. Love pre-moving those good works. Now you can tell if you're really laboring for the Lord if you love the labor you're doing. If it's a drag, then you may not be serving God or you just may need a vacation. Hebrews 10.24, God works, God works. God's works are deeds of self-sacrifice. Good works that we do, even pre-moved by love good works, are infinitesimal compared to Jesus' act on the cross. They compare with that act, but only infinitesimally so, only in a tiny way. In fact, in my imagination, I picture our acts of love as beautiful as deeds accomplished by the grace of God. But I also view them in comparison with Jesus' self-sacrificing love as a kind of tiny point of light in a night sky which displays the infinity of God's love in Christ Jesus and in his act of supreme sacrifice. The supreme act of history and the supreme deed that redeems history. That which we call figuratively or really the cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he endured on the cross, is the supreme deed that ultimately redeems history. Of this supreme act of Christ, this is one of those sublime quotes that are exquisite and brief and succinct. The supreme act of Christ, which we call the cross of Christ, Lonergan stated succinctly but sublimely that it is, quote, the supreme moment of history, and all the rest is diluted epiphany, is its diluted epiphany. The supreme moment of history is when Christ offered himself once and for all to take away sin. And the rest of history is simply that moment's diluted epiphany. The dilution or the watering down of or the spreading out and the fanning out of that supreme act of God in history. So every one of our good acts is kind of a diluted epiphany of the cross of Christ. It manifests the cross of Christ, but in an infinitesimally small way. God is who he is, but... Listen carefully, though. God regards even those infinitesimally small acts, like giving a cup of cold water to a prophet, as worthy of a prophet's reward. So there is something significant about seemingly insignificant deeds of love and kindness. God is who he is in his word, in his son. Here's the theology of our theological exegesis. God is who he is in his word, in his son. The son is who he is in the father and not apart from the father. He is one with him in essence 
or substance, in being and in name and in act. While he is another person from the Father. He is all that the Father is except he's not the Father. That's the Athanasian principle, a principle developed by Athanasius. The Father is all that the Son is except he's not the Son. He's all that the Word is, and yet he's not the Word that has become flesh. The Word is in him, and he is in the Word. The Word is in the Father, and the Father is in the Word. The Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son, and the Spirit is in the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son are in the Spirit. But listen to this. And the Father and the Son, a.k.a. the Word of God, are in you. In you to save you, defend you, to make you new in his love, and to bring about joy in you. John fifteen eleven, As we learned from Zephaniah three seventeen, also known as Sophonismas. I think that's what it is. Three seventeen. He will rejoice over you. And sing over you in endless feasting. In an endless day of feasting called the Jubilee. Once our hearts have been assimilated to love, we are to continue in the love and affection of siblings, brothers and sisters toward one another, and toward all mankind. In Hebrews 4.13, That's where we're going next. Listen to this. This is the tracks to run on. I'm almost done for this increment. For there is no created being who isn't naked and completely exposed to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable. No created being who isn't naked and completely exposed to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable. Adam and the woman Isha were naked in the garden and not ashamed. Jesus on the cross was naked and not ashamed. He despised the shame. He thought nothing of it. Jesus and the woman, the church, the body of Christ, are unashamed. The supreme reason why the judgment of God in his word is not judgmental in the sense that it merely that it's merely justice and condemning justice. The reason it isn't that and the reason that it is an act of grace and an act of love is precisely because in Hebrews 4:14 we have a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. I'm giving you hints of where we're going. He is Jesus, the Son of God, Hebrews 4.14, who is also the Word of God, John 1.1, 1, 1, 1, Revelation 19, 13-16. He is he whom God is as to existence and essence and name and act. We've heard recently rumors of a, quote, reality czar (laughs) being appointed in our nation, in our government. Well, the Holy Spirit is the divine reality czar, and Jesus is the reality As reality, Jesus assimilates us to himself and to his mind and to his intentionality. As the ultimate reality czar, the Holy Spirit assimilates us to Christ. He makes us like him. He makes us be transformed from one degree of glory to the next into his image in 2 Corinthians 3.18. The final judgment, therefore, will be based on the word of God 
and one's degree of conformity to the Son of God. To those who have not in any way been so conformed in this life, their so-called penalty will be to be suddenly conformed into his image. Jürgen Moltmann said it well in the closing paragraph of his essay, a little article called The Logic of Hell, in a book edited by Richard Bauckham entitled, God Will Be All in All. As he closed out that little article called The Logic of Hell, Moltmann said this, Judgment is not God's last word. Judgment establishes in the world the divine righteousness on which the new creation is to be built. But God's last word is, quote, Behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21.5 From this, no one is accepted. E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D Love is God's compassion with the lost, transforming grace is God's punishment for sinners. There's a sublime and succinct quote. I can't help but think of this periodically. It comes to mind and I have to go, where was that? And I got to find it. And I did find it again. Transforming grace is God's punishment for sinners. And then he closes that paragraph by saying, it's not the right to choose that defines the reality of human freedom. It's the doing of the good. Now, as we close, if this is true, and I think the Bible shows that it is, and I've spent the last 11 years at the Alamo demonstrating that it is, then God, the judge of all, in Hebrews 12.23, is the justifying judge of all. If you see Romans 8.33, let me know, because it says, God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? God who justifies. In other words, God exclusively justifies in his judgment. Why? Because Christ died. And so Romans 5.18 says that the act of obedience of Jesus Christ, who is one in act with the Father, who gave himself on the cross to put away sin, that act of obedience by the one man, Jesus Christ, resulted in justification and life. A life-giving justification for all of humanity. In all of its times, that's diachronic redemption. Now, if God who justifies exclusively judges by justifying and all humanity will be justified, then God is the justifying judge of all in Hebrews 12, 23. God, the judge of all, is the justifier of all. Because he justified his son, Jesus Christ, the one who died. He was delivered over for our offenses and resurrected for our justification. Romans 4.25 And so, he justifies all. And Romans 8.30 goes further. It says, all whom he justifies, he also glorifies. Everybody's going to be part of the glorious new creation when Shekinah, God's glory, conflates with Sabbatismos, the Sabbath rest. He glorifies as many as he justifies, and he justifies all who were once condemned in Adam. By the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, to the extent of the death of the cross, all were justified, all who were once all condemned in Adam. Now, in this transformation of sinners, 
there is a thorough satisfaction for those who cry out for justice. Let me say that again. In this transformation of sinners, there is a thorough satisfaction for those who cry out for justice and for the correction of injustices. Because those who did us wrong or did those who want justice wrong will be so transformed that the person they were and that did the injustices will have been eternally destroyed, destroyed forever in that transformative judgment. The real person, however, will survive and be saved, but as through fire. Love's fire, Song of Solomon 8, 6, 1 John 4, 8, Hebrews 12, 29. Love's fire is stronger than any fire of judgment, while at the same time it secures a satisfaction for justice that retaliation could never and will never obtain. It's important to round up all this doctrine to fill out the idea of the judgmental word of God and God's judgmental vision of humankind, as one commentator put it, and of every being in creation, for that matter, in Hebrews 4.13. For when the reference comes to be for every created being is not exempt from his gaze and is naked and laid bare before him, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing that God sees all of his creation in all of its times as the object of his justifying love. So thank you, Father, that we have been afforded a slight glimpse into your heart. And your heart is your son. Your heart is your word. We thank you for this. We pray that you'll allow the word of God, which is truly, currently, living, phenomenally relevant to us now, active and energetic to the reviving of our spirit and the enlivening of our souls and even the strengthening of our bodies at this time in history. We ask, Father, that your law of love that's so inextricably woven to the law of the cross will begin to transform the people of our generation and the people of the generations to come and our grandchildren's generations. And that by your word and by your grace and by the law of love and the law of the cross, we pray that you'll bring history up from its current decline. We ask this with reverence, but with absolute and unqualified confidence that it will be done in Jesus' name. Amen.